Welcome to the Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and today we have Dr. Karen Price as well as our usual co-hosts Charlotte and Beck. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. We invited Karen on the podcast to talk a little bit about social media, the way you can be a leader amongst social media platforms, and then also about her PhD. But before we get onto those subjects, Karen, can you give us a highlight of the week? Well, I've been thinking about this, the highlight of the week, and I'm not sure if it's a highlight, but I'll highlight it. Does that make sense? <laughs> so sure. on Tuesday, we went down to Latrobe Valley in Gippsland, Victoria, which is about two hours east of Melbourne. And we went to a forum looking at the rural health doctor shortage in Gippsland, and in particular in an area called Latrobe. And it was ostensibly a workshop with multiple stakeholders. We had lots of community people around tables and things. I went there with Anita Munoz and the state faculty manager, Con. And the first thing when we were let loose to apply our workshop solutions and things was that someone who was a retired specialist started off the conversation by saying we need to get rid of GPs, we need to do role substitution with paramedics and nurses. (laughs) And it's one of those really confronting things and said with such emphatic certainty And I was the only GP on the table. All the other people were in various roles in health, but not in general practice. And I did hesitate for a minute as I let the wash of rage and then just responded with, well, that's against all international evidence to fragment care and so on. Went through my little spiel on the evidence for quality general practice. And I've just been reflecting on that commentary ever since and also obviously the issues of rural health placements and complexities of delivering health within a team and it's just stimulated a lot of thought and discussion amongst my peers because that wasn't the response from the other people on the table who are all happy to work in a collaborative team environment in various roles and I just wondered why there is that narrative amongst some people and it bothers me considerably so I don't know whether you have ever come up against something like that but it sort of stops you in your tracks when it's stated so emphatically. I think that I've experienced similar things in slightly different ways, as in I think it comes down to not really understanding what we do and not having worked in our settings and therefore not seeing the value if you haven't been exposed to it at all. And I think it is useful to to shake the boat a little bit and go, is the way that we're doing it the right way and consider all the different options. So how did he respond when you did actually sort of have that response and what was the support around the table like? Well, they were a proceduralist, a surgeon, and obviously they didn't have a lot of experience in general practice but felt that they could state that emphatically, which was interesting. My response was to be calm and respectful, of course, and to try and remain curious about it. And I just said, well, that's really against all the international evidence. If you look at it, the evidence around the world in the literature is for a well-resourced primary care sector, which delivers fantastic outcomes in mortality and morbidity and in cost efficiency. So it's not really the point to fragment care. And the focus of the night was to talk about the way that we operate in community care. And, you know, the ideal 
practice is one that's centred around collaboration, but still there's this idea that we can sometimes replace general practitioners somewhere and somehow. And I think that's exactly as you say, Charlotte, that we have difficulty describing what we do. When you do a procedure, it's a very single linear object. Someone comes in, they have a lap collie and out they go and you can measure before and after infection rates and so on and get leaders boards on how many you've done. I mean, it's a more easily quantified environment, but in general practice, our outcomes are much more longitudinal. And whilst there are quantitative outcomes, there's also the qualitative outcomes that are really hard to measure and to justify. Can I also suggest that there's some degree of of exactly that, but then when the specialist with a fine point of interest doesn't understand the role of generalism and that you need the generalism to actually make everything function together and because they've got such a different brain thinking, they just don't get that bigger picture. Um, There's some really interesting literature out there about the ways in which we view what we do and understanding of it. And I think that some of that is about educating some of these very sort of super specialists into the understanding of the the really crucial role of generalism. I think that too. And I think that Trish Greenhow has talked about that kind of the paradigm of the very strongly positivist environment and how that's not really a suitable philosophy of knowledge for general practice, which, you know, in terms of philosophy of science stuff, it's not something that many medical people really get exposure to but I guess doing a PhD it's part of what you have to go through so I think there's that formulation and you know it's different personalities in medicine which is great and people who select themselves out for doing procedures have probably got a very different approach to things than someone who might select themselves out for doing longitudinal care in the community. Obviously, that's a generalisation, but I think some of the studies suggest that that's the case. Well, it'd be interesting to compare the recommendations that your group came up with compared to the Rural Health Summit in Alice Springs this week. Oh, yeah. Well, that would be interesting. Do you know what they were? Only from John Kramer's photos in the RACGP Rural Faculty Facebook group. The table basically came up with community-owned medical home with lots of patient engagement in that home with a range of allied health providers in there. We had to come up with big, bold ways of managing this. And of course, the big elephant in the room was the funding model. So of course, that's not the only solution for rural health outcomes and are very complicated. I've got a a cousin who's a farmer out in the Wimmera and he says, well, out in Horsham, they find it very hard to get GPs, whereas in Hamilton, which is also in the Wimmera, they don't. And the difference is that Hamilton has several large schools of good reputation. And I asked one of my senior colleagues at my practice in Melbourne, and he said, well, when he graduated, he considered going to the country, but his wife didn't want to go. So, you know, these are complicated, difficult problems that have been in existence. I guess my point of that story was that it's been in existence for a long, long time. Yes, and it's going to need a wicked solution for the wicked problem. Indeed. It's not going to be getting rid of general practice. It may be reinvigorating general practice, but it won't be about getting rid of the generalist. (laughs) Anyway. So, Beck, what's your highlight of the week? Thanks, Ash. My highlight of the week is I went to a PHN educational event last night. 
and it's actually been a long time since I've gone to one because I've been working some distance from home. The highlight of the event actually admittedly wasn't the educational component but it was the social component that went along with it. So I was um, meeting some of the other local GPs that I haven't seen in a long time, talking to them about where they were up to and where they were working and doing a little bit of social networking which was fantastic. I think the value of that is really understated. And Charlotte? It was my mum's 87th birthday and she lives on the central coast. And so I and my husband and two of my children and their partners and my grandchild went and spent the day with her, which was lovely because she lives on her own and I always worry about her anyway, but it was lovely. She had a lovely day with us. I brought up an amazing gourmet picnic and we just enjoyed the joy of having her and being able to be a family. That sounds like a lovely way to celebrate an 87th birthday. Yes. If I have the pleasure of being able to be 87, I think I would like to have my children want to come and spend the day with me. Absolutely. So my highlight of the week, guys, is I saw Elton John live in Coffs Harbour. Really? Yes. He did cancel the New Zealand show because he had pneumonia and can't say from a medical perspective looked particularly well in the show, but he definitely put on a show and it was a really fun time and and really great. We actually had two shows in Kofsar. We had Tuesday and Wednesday and it was a a big highlight for a regional centre. Oh, wow. It would have been a a highlight for for me at all. Oh, wow. And you really enjoyed it, I imagine. Yeah, we got to dance like right at the front. We were really close. You know, we had we had seats that were five or six rows back and then they opened up in front of the front seats for people to go and dance down the front. And so we were, you know, only two or three people back from the stage. It was, it was pretty awesome. So on that note, we will continue our discussions with Karen. And I think for people who don't know you, Karen, why would we be talking to you about social media? Well, because I guess I'm involved in it a lot I've given talks on getting onto it and I guess was a relatively early adopter not the earliest adopter but relatively early and have been heavily involved in that space for a long time obviously I'm on Twitter as at Brookman Knight and which is my first foray and then on Facebook with my family and kids and all that and trying to work that through and then into Facebook groups which is obviously GPs down under And it's been an interesting journey as the technology has evolved in this space in terms of when I started in general practice, there were no computers. And when I had my own practice, one of my roles there was to introduce computerization into the practice. And so there was an implementation phase. And I guess through my lifetime, I've really watched how technology has transformed our workplaces and our home lives for good and for bad, I guess, like any new technology, like any new introduction, like cars is good and bad. So it's just part of an adventure that goes on. I think my driver to do so is just an endless curiosity (laughs) about how it might be used within a professional sense. And so what led you to doing a PhD? I never thought I'd end up doing a PhD and then all of a sudden I found myself doing it. I was chair of the Women in General Practice at the college in Victoria and we did a regular annual conference and before that I've been doing small group learning in my area for 20 years with two different groups that I run. And 
just observing how GPs talk to each other was really interesting and then did a little survey for the Women in General Practice, which became a publication on women's leadership. And through that process, was talking to a lot of academics and I went to Wonka in Prague in 2013 and presented that in a workshop. And it was a really stimulating and interesting environment. I've been in practice for a while then. And I think I began to see how important primary care research is in articulating the very conversation that I had that we introduced this session with. It's so important to be able to say what we do, how we do it, why we do it and how important it is to understand that from multiple angles. And so, and seeing how particularly at Wonka, people like Harris Ladakis, who's now I think CEO of Wonka, was a young guy then and we were involved in workshops with him and he's the GP from Italy and much more heavily involved than the Australians at that point, it appeared, in research from a young age through the university. So I think I'd have to say that piqued my curiosity and I just kept walking through the doors that kept opening and and here I am. So what's been a highlight for you in terms of that journey? I think seeing the full complexity of general practice as a vocation that it really is a journey of continual learning and we often see general practice as purely being in front of patients, which I've done a lot, but there are all these other elements to it. And, you know, as you would know, with your medical education roles, with policy roles, with research roles, there's a really rich vocation in what we do. And it really has always been there, but I I just don't know whether maybe it's just me, but I didn't fully appreciate that being swamped by earlier iterations of myself being a mum with three kids and my own practice it was a pretty busy time so you know you don't look above the parapet sometimes to see what else can be done. Can I also sort of challenge that I think that we don't get taught well I didn't and I'm you know similar generation in terms of the journey for me I never was taught about the big picture of medicine in general practice. General practice was sold as this sort of you know you were tucked away in your little private practice and you saw the coughs and colds and that was the vision that was sold to me and I certainly wasn't interested in it. I knew that I loved everything. You know, I was one of those ridiculous people who didn't matter what you did, it was just like, oh, this is so much fun. And so general practice is made for me but no one had ever sold that. But even more than that, I still didn't have the aha moment of what general practice could do for shaping the health of the nation until I was, you know, 10, 15 years down the track. And I truly think that's because we just, you know, in, in many respects, a lot of us don't get that either because we are so busy at the coalface doing that clinical medicine that you don't have time to draw back and do that. And so I'm very thankful that I have had the opportunity to, to do that. Yeah, I think that's so very true because, you know, when a thunderstorm asthma hit Melbourne in 2016, I think I saw a couple of extra patients in my practice and didn't think much of it. And one of my mates at the Department of Health, who's a public health physician, rang me and said, oh, Karen, there's a workshop on and no one's representing general practice. I know you run that Facebook group. Can you find out from your GPs what went on? And so I put this post up and you know, a few replies trickled in from GPs around Melbourne. Nothing startling though. Everyone said, oh yeah, yeah, I saw this, I did that, blah, blah, blah. And that was a qualitative response, but it really wasn't a dramatic response and none of us really 
thought a great deal about it. And then I thought, look, I'll ask Jed Foley from IPN because I know they've got a database across their practice sites. And I said, can you get some data from your research unit about what happened on that day? And they pulled up this incredible spike in asthma presentations that occurred within that 24-hour period and huge spike. And so Cameron Loy was able to take that and really talk to those figures as well as the qualitative stuff. And, you know, he relayed how in an outer suburb of Geelong, Lara, he, he had to resuscitate someone on that day. And so these simple stories that we just take in our stride, oh, yes, so-and-so's got asthma, go and treat them, which we do. But when taken en masse are such an elastic response and none of the people that we treated ended up in hospital. And we don't see that as heroic. It's just part of our job. But when you look at the stats, it's an enormous undertaking that we do. And together as a whole community enterprise, we do a lot for the health system in terms of keeping those people out of hospital. But it's not a story that I can tell as an individual. No, and then I'll extend that into that whole social networking thing, is that capacity to when we all tell our stories together, that we learn and we bounce off each other to then do a better job as well. I can remember, you know, that whole thing about guidelines, you know, I'd talk to my colleagues about, well, you know, what are you going to do about this guideline? And that we sort of need to talk to each other and mesh what we think and hear what the consultants say, but then put it into the context of general practice and our patients. And it takes a slightly different morphing. And it's not that we treat outside of guidelines, it's that we know how to adapt into guidelines for our patients in that setting, which is that whole complexity thing that people don't really understand. Yeah, I think you've come across the mind lines in your PhD, Charlotte, as I have, and it's a great conceptualisation of what we do from Gabay and LeMay in the UK. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing, but it's not inconsistent with evidence-based medicine, of course. And I did hear someone say, interestingly, that the guidelines are really good for novice learners. And then as you, I guess, go through and you get a bit more experience that you're able to interpret and nuance and adapt those guidelines. So I think that's probably a a developmental phase in your general practice life. But you need a guideline as well to set what the basics of the evidence is for what we're doing. And if you didn't have that, you couldn't nuance anything. And so I think it's really fundamental to know that's your foundation stone, but exactly as you, you use your experience and those around you to know when it's okay to adapt. It's when I always sort of say it's one of the differences that as a doctor we are taught to understand how to use that knowledge safely for the benefit of the patient in front of us. Exactly. You've mentioned social media leadership. It's a, it's a very interesting space in terms of how to manage yourself as a medical professional online. So I am, when I'm online, acting in a capacity as a medical professional. And as you know, we've got guidelines on GPs down under with the reference to APRA social media guidelines and the RACGP and I presume ACRIM have got social media guidelines. I know the AMA do. So I don't see myself as acting any different online than I would in real life. I think we're just mindful that we do have a role as a science communicator. We have it in our practices and we have it online as well and both in sharing knowledge, which is part of our education, which never stops. And in terms of having a public face on uh, outward-facing media like Twitter, we've been able to have really rich conversations with, you know, health policy people, people who are allied to primary care and also patient advocates. 
So that's been a really rich experience. And I, and I know people often deride social media, which I puzzle over, but it's just another way of communicating. And Stanford University did this fantastic plotting of Voltaire's correspondence over his lifetime. And it was huge. He was a, apparently a voluminous letter writer. And we're doing a similar thing in a shorter time frame with our Twitter and, and social media feeds. So I don't see it as something, it's, it's just technology that's a bit new that enables what humans have always done. It is interesting, though, that whole thing about, you know, what people feel comfortable with. I mean, I'm not comfortable in the Facebook space, but I love Twitter. For me, Twitter it just resonates with how I like finding out information and seeing the communications, whereas I find I'm not, not nearly as comfortable but I actually appreciate being able to look at people's opinions on Facebook. But it's good. But I also appreciate I've got a large number of colleagues who don't even want to have a Facebook account. Yeah, well, that's okay. They obviously operate in a different way and there's many ways to be a, a medical professional. And I think we've all just got to find our, our comfort level. I've always been a curious person. I like to explore those opportunities. I, I sort of feel that if you didn't explore technology, I've always felt there was a risk in being left behind, which I didn't want to be. So it's a, it's an interesting world. Yeah, look, I think that's a, a really interesting discussion. Something that you said about I still act as though I'm a medical professional online. And it, that's fascinating to me in that there seems to be a tipping point in groups where people are respectful of each other. And then sometimes there's a tipping point in terms of volume where because there's so many people around and you're not having face-to-face discussions that it slightly changes a little bit. And I'm interested in your perspective or anything you found out in the research about the potential downsides of of either interacting with social media or, or posting in a certain way on, on social media. Yeah, I think some people feel more emboldened to behave badly, but um, we always know who they are if you're talking about Facebook. And Twitter, it's more difficult, of course, if someone is a medical professional but behaving badly, if they've got an anonymous avatar. But we've got strict guidelines around it without trying to impede anyone's free speech. I think sometimes doctors are burned out. I think they may sometimes lose their self-control. And I think that can happen anywhere. And what we're seeing in real time is what's always been there, but perhaps not as well articulated. I mean, I can remember practices where I went in as a new doctor and, you know, the partners didn't talk to each other and there was all sorts of dysfunctional ways of behaving. And and we're now seeing that online. We're also seeing, as I mentioned in that MJA Insight article this week, is the sort of muting of some groups and we're seeing lots of intersectional issues. So like the marriage equality debate, for instance, was probably one of the hardest weekends of my life. I'd gone away with my partner for a country weekend and on that weekend was when there was this huge debate on GPs down under about marriage equality and I saw really the lived experience of trauma which was really poignant and of course some people disagreed with the way that the college responded or with the way the community responded which is you know within their rights of course and how people navigated these two very different positions with such an emotive lot of issues from religion to culture to to belief to, you know, the sacredness of life. I mean, there was so much in that debate and we saw it in real time. What we wouldn't have seen years ago was the trauma. We wouldn't have seen that unless we were involved in that community. We wouldn't have seen the suffering and we wouldn't have heard those voices. So whilst it's difficult 
I think it's a really important thing that we are now seeing and we are now having a, a pluralistic debate rather than thinking that we're a monoculture and if you're not part of that monoculture then you don't get a chance to speak. I think that's probably an interesting thing. You've got to be brave enough to do that and that does take quite a bit of courage. So I'm always very conscious of making sure that the moderation is as best as we can do around those types of topics and for people who may feel less confident in speaking up. And of course, there's a lot of people who lurk and that's a perfectly legitimate experience. And I think what's interesting about the the marriage equality side of things is even though that debate was very passionate, it actually led to change. Yeah. And it was a community level passion, wasn't it? It was a big debate and it did lead to a change. And here we are, which is, I hope, a better place for everybody. You were mentioning moderation and one thing that I was keen to touch on today was your thoughts around how social media actually make people less likely to moderate their own behaviour. So when if they wouldn't say something to someone standing across from them, they seem less inhibited posting that opinion online or less aware of the people they may offend in posting that opinion online because they're not directly face-to-face with that opinion. And if you've struggled with that or what your approach is to managing that within your ever-growing social media community. I think one of the problems is, well, one, we've got people of various degrees of exhaustion, fatigue, burnout, and the whole spectrum of our Australian community experiences with all the different opinions, politics and everything else that goes on. So, you know, there are some strong opinions. I think the other thing is that we're seeing in social media, we're now back to text. We're back to when Voltaire was (laughs) writing his letters, they wrote letters to each other. There was no telephone communication. There wasn't any audio unless it was face to face. Now we've gone through telephone, which is what I grew up with, um, where everything was audio, and now we're back to texting again. And and then there is a definite skill in being able to communicate your message in a way where the message can be received. And I think we're just learning about that. And I have observed that we are seeing a different type of behaviour than when GPs down under first started. I think people are getting used to the ability to to use text. Facebook have introduced emoticons a while ago to overcome the loss of communication when it is only text because even in what we're talking about now, there'll be so much that people can hear within my voice or within your voice, Beck or Charlotte or Ash, that, that is communicating as well as the very words that I'm saying. So, you know, having that deeply empathic, understanding that our words aren't just the only thing that we communicate and I think people are slowly learning and obviously some people struggle with it more but I think that we are slowly seeing a change in the way that we manage that and clearly we don't tolerate outright offensive behavior or bullying or anything we don't tolerate any of that so you know we're very mindful of keeping the space as safe as we can with over 7,000 members. It sounds like a massive job. (laughs) it's not too bad because I think the majority of people are actually respectful and are curious about what someone else is saying and I think by modeling that we've kind of shown that you know if you've got a strong opinion clearly you're passionate about something and you want to be able to communicate that passion and why you're passionate about it so unless you want to alienate everyone in the room you're going to need to learn how to communicate that 
and sort of gets back to, you know, we are science communicators, the very word doctor is teacher. So, you know, we have to understand that skill in our role as medical educators, you know, being able to communicate difference with our patients, being able to communicate a different point of view or to gently steer people away from anti-vaccination stands or ceasing smoking or whatever behaviour that's harming their own health. We, we have to do that. So I think we have the skills as GPs and we're learning in a big area now how to manage that between each other. The silent sign. That's a good sign, Karen. That's like a, like a <laughs> contemplative silence. <laughs> well, there's so much to being human, isn't there? There's so much to it. It's such a, a challenge for all of us at times to control ourselves. And there's certainly times when I push myself away from a keyboard and calm down for a bit. So I think that's another skill is learning to walk away sometimes is the better part of Bella. It sounds like you've got a lot of practice at that, Karen, with your anger flushing over you and the... <laughs> Oh, yeah, come on. I've got an Irish grandmother, so for sure, for sure. (laughs) I was quite interested about that sort of notion of us learning to communicate in writing again because it's also quite a different communication in writing. I mean, when my mother was an amazing letter writer, so she migrated over to Australia and had no family here and wrote letters to all her family members. So she would write four or five letters minimum a week and was able to do this but it was only to the person that she wrote it to whereas now with Facebook and emails and things you very easily throw your writings out to a crowd of which a lot of them you don't have any actual relationship with either so it's quite a different audience and it's a different I mean it's obviously much shorter too because you can just throw off few lines without thinking about this is going to cost me x amount of money on my postage stamp or that time and effort but it is really interesting isn't it coming back to that communicating in words and how you do that and not be offensive because I'm mindful there are some people who I really like speaking to but when they send me an email it often makes my hair stand up because their tone in an email is quite different and I think help knowing them is helpful because then you know it's a, a personal style thing, not a personal thing. And I think just having a position of tolerance for people's, unless they're calling you outright, frankly, offensive names, I think this is part of us learning about difference and learning about different approaches and, and different ways of seeing things. And, and certainly, you know, it's taken me out of my comfort zone and when we sit in our consultation rooms with our patients you know we we are not challenged very often and you know yourself Charlotte and Beck in the academic space how often you're challenged and I think on social media you know I once called the academic peer reviewer the academic bear pit and I think you know you know we're learning to again tolerate that gap of of experience that we call difference and we're better able to understand it but it, it is a skill to learn tolerance be good if we had more of it I think and I think an awareness that not everybody has great skill in writing or has been able to reflect on how the writing comes across to someone else reading it I know for my emails I like to be very brief and just like I'm emailing you because of this over the years I've realized it's really nice to ask people how they're going and give them a nice little intro first before you ask them to do something and you know end with a nice comment as well because otherwise it it does come across like quite, you know, 
oh wow okay that's that's what we're going to do yeah I have to warn people when I get really busy that I can sometimes just chuck out a very blunt message to my family and friends it's like oh oh, sorry (laughs) because it's a bit blunt because I'm hacking it out in 30 seconds or something and you just you do have to remember that and I can remember my daughter read the eight books of Anne of Green Gables I don't know if you've ever read that story set of Ellen Montgomery but the writing is so flowery it's you know, from a different era, the care and voluminous flowery writing of a hundred years ago was so different to our style today, which, you know, we might use a a simple emoticon to express a whole lot of response. So we're a bit more time poor, aren't we? We do have to stop and think about the person on the other end. What your top tips would be for, particularly I'm interested in leading in the social media space. So more than just how to get onto social media, but how to be a leader within social media. Well, firstly, I don't see myself that way. I am just good old KP and I guess I have passions and things that I talk about and that I'm willing to share. So I don't see that as necessarily leading. But then again, having looked at leadership a little bit in the academic literature, I I still go back to the UK who developed a leadership framework. And I think that all medical professionals are leaders. You know, we're leaders in our room, we're leaders with our patients, we have authority in that, which can sometimes be seen as a power gradient, which is not good. But we do have some leadership because we've got a specialised body of knowledge. And We're leaders at home with our children if we have them and we're often seen as leaders in our community or even within our families when it comes to medical matters. So I think leadership is about having some authenticity perhaps and alignment with your authentic self and how you want to proceed in this world and rather than being seen as a populist kind of thing, I think it's available to everybody. You know, we have to think of leadership as not necessarily a role, which is a management role. I think if you want to think about leadership, there's, you know, there's many ways to express that and it doesn't have to be in one particular way. I mean, you may be a leader where your only follower is is yourself and that's okay. Being authentic and having that very, I think, values-driven mission, I think that's probably where I've come from. When I went on social media, my, my prime purpose was to, for education and enlargement of my realm of experience within the medical domain. And that's been my, I guess, guiding you know, moment. And so that comes with, as I said before, a certain amount of professionalism in being able to manage that role. So, you know, on Twitter, you'd often get a marriage proposal here or there. So those people get a very swift block because I'm keeping my mission very focused on medical matters and matters that are related to my professional life. I very rarely share personal or private things. And one of the interesting things I see amongst my adult children who are young adults is that they are very aware these days of their online privacy. And I think more so than those of us who've come to the internet space later. I think because they've been brought up with technology, they're very aware of keeping something for themselves. So, yeah, I think just being authentic, I feel I am the same online as I am offline. And I know when I met, like I, I think I met you and McPhee for the first time in the halls of Prague in 2013 and, and he was the same offline as he is online and and the same with a lot of the Wonka people from around the world. We all commented upon that how oh you are actually the same and it is a bit weird that I've only met you online for a year but 
I actually know you. Again, that's a really interesting thing about being authentic. I guess maybe I've missed the people who are anonymous, but you know, if you're on there in a professional sense, I think Tim Senior and I gave a talk where we think it's a good idea to use your real name and to have a real purpose about why you're in that space. So passion and purpose united, I, th- I think that's where I'd go with that one. So Karen, we've come to the end of our time today. What is your clinical tip for our listeners? My clinical tip is professionalism and to hold on to that because medicine, like other professional practices, non-medical, are undergoing this kind of weird transformation to perhaps more of a commercial environment, which I think is a big threat to medicine. And I think we've always had a a strong culture in medicine. There's some bad aspects to that, but there is lots of good, which is when I've looked up what professionalism means, according to this article by Joanna Flynn, which is our old medical board chief, is the outward visible expression of a profession's culture and what a profession stands for. So it's a complex thing about doing the right thing by our patients, doing the right thing by yourself, doing the ethical and right thing by your education standards. It's a a long and involved conversation probably for another podcast. I was just going to say exactly the same thing, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) But it's definitely linked to quality, wouldn't you think, Charlotte? Oh, absolutely. Intrinsically wound through there, but there's a whole lot of that stuff, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Leadership, professionalism, quality and generalism. Yes, they're complex and so you you can't be reductive in those discussions and that's why it's hard to really be precise. We do like in a very short time space to have something complex reduced to a single word, which is maybe useful, but I don't think as language is the symbol of our own experience that we can reduce our experience to sometimes just a single word. So I think we have to be mindful of that. And Charlotte, what's your tip? Oh, look, I'm mindful that we are amidst lots of coronavirus conversations. And so my tip is that please keep an eye out on the RACGP website because there will be daily, if needed, updates on what to do. But there's also some really good resources for what to do in your practice. I've been struck by how many GPs don't seem to actually even understand infection control for what it means for the practice and what they do. And we've got some wonderful resources about what does your practice manager need to do, what does your receptionist need to do, what do you need to do as the GP both outside the room, talking to the patient and in terms of maintaining a room. So just come and click on the button on our website and go find any number of resources that are helpful. And there's regular posts now in the New South Wales and ACT official RACGP Facebook group, which is where the faculty is able to provide regular updates on things like this and links. Absolutely. And New South Wales is also sending out regular partnered emails with New South Wales Health, just so that because we are mindful that there's different approaches around Australia. So we're trying to make sure that the New South Wales ones know what to do. And, you know, basically, but that's why I say go to the national site, because you'll be able to find what's relevant for what's going on everywhere. It's been an excellent resource, the national button. It's been great just to go up there and go click and then down to your state and there there it all is. You know, kudos to the people who are maintaining that site. It's an enormous undertaking. I was going to jump in with my tip of the week next because it actually follows on nicely from Charlotte because my tip of the week is actually if you're in doubt about what to do with coronavirus and you can't find your answer is to call public health. 
I had to call them earlier in the week with a tricky situation that didn't quite fit any of the guidelines. And I'm sure there'll be many patients who don't quite fit guidelines as we've spoken about previously. And they didn't have the answers, but they were able to talk to somebody and get back to me within 10 minutes with the answers. So they were absolutely lovely, very approachable and could answer all my questions or find them out if they couldn't. So if in doubt, make the phone call. That kind of segues nicely into my clinical tip of the week, which is related to public health. And I really appreciate when we have our sexual health physicians or the the public health people to be able to contact in relation to other infectious diseases. And I have found similar experiences in that I can very clearly get some advice straight away on exactly what I need to do and how, particularly for patients who might have I had a needle stick injury in, in different contexts and an interpretation of the guidelines when it's not as clear cut as to what is supposed to be done. And in that frame, the Australasian Society for HIV, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine have recently updated their PrEP guidelines, so pre-exposure prophylaxis guidelines to prevent HIV. And I would encourage everybody to have a look at them, download them. It gives some really clear guidance as to what tests to do, how to monitor things, what you need to do before prescribing and to meet the PBS requirements for prescribing PrEP. Well, thank you for coming on the episode today, Karen. We really appreciate your time, insight and expertise. Thanks, Karen. Thank you very much for having me.